Onward to the sun. All right. So first of the stars that we're actually going to study, we'll go from chapter 9 as we zip through the solar system. The only star in the solar system is the sun. And it'll sort of give us a base point to talk about when we're talking about the stars, which we start covering in the next chapter. In chapter 10, we'll start talking about the stars themselves. Um, sun is the one star we can study in a lot of detail. So here's a nice close image of it, mainly because we're so close to it. We're only one astronomical unit away from it. One astronomical unit as compared to uh, many hundreds of thousands of astronomical units for the next nearest star. So we're very close to the sun, able to study it in a lot more detail. We don't see these kind of features. We can't observe this kind of detail on any other star, even with the most powerful telescopes. So we saw what kind of nice images we could get of Pluto, right? Not much. Well, stars are a lot bigger, but they're also many, many times further away. So they don't look, you don't get any more detail even on the largest, closest stars than we get on things like Pluto. But the sun is the one we can actually study and actually look at in detail. And that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the sun overall. Then we'll look at the interior of the sun, what we can't see deep down inside, what we do know about. We'll look at the atmosphere of the sun. Those are the bits we can actually see. right? That's what we're seeing of it. We can see the uh, solar surface. and We can see the atmosphere out, above, out beyond that. And then we'll go to the active sun. That's all the cool stuff. That's the, act, that's the sunspots, the prominences, the flares, all the activity that we see on the sun. And then come back. We'll go, we start at the interior. We'll come back to the interior. First time we look at just the general structure. Last we come back and look at actually the, um, the energy source. Where does the sun get all of its energy? And we'll look at the nuclear reactions going on at the core. So. Some basic numbers of the sun. You don't need to memorize any of them. It's a table in your book. I'm not going to test you on, uh, test you on any of these. Uh, just to give you an idea how big the sun is, if you can imagine something 700,000 kilometers in size. I can't, but if you can imagine something 700,000 kilometers in size, that's how big it is. Mass many, many times the mass of the Earth. Density, though, in these units, the density of water would be about 1,000 kilograms per cubic meter. So overall, the sun isn't that much denser than water. About the same density as water. It's got a very dense core where the material is crushed together at very high pressures. And it's got a very, very thin atmosphere, you know, like our own atmosphere, not much as dense as this or even less dense than some of what we have here. How long does it take the sun to rotate once? Good question. Depends on where you're looking. Um, if you look at the equator, it takes about 25 days. So if you watch a sunspot at the equator, take it about 25 days to orbit around once. So if you watched one of these sunspots and you watched it over a few days, you'd watch it travel across the face of the sun and then disappear around here. And then if it still survived, you'd watch it come back again about a month after it first appeared on this side. 25 days. If you look a little further up at about 60 degrees, so you get well up here, it takes a little over 30 days. If you get way up to the top here, it takes about 36 days. So it takes a lot longer to rotate the faster you go up. Actually, we saw, we see this on the planets as well. Jupiter and Saturn do the same thing. And it's because they're not a solid. Right? That wouldn't make any sense here on the Earth. Right? A day is a day because we're a big solid ball of rock rotating. 
On the sun, you're not, it's not a solid ball of rock, it's gas. So the outer areas, the equatorial regions can spin a lot faster, and in fact, much faster. You know, one day here, you spun around once and your sunspot came back there. If you were looking at the poles, you still haven't even made, you still got 11 more days to, make, to finish your rotation around. Surface temperature, a little toasty, almost 5,800 degrees. So a little bit warmer than we're used to here on the Earth. Again, one of the reasons you can't explore the sun directly, there's not much that's going to survive 5,000 degrees. So if you want to try to send a probe into the sun, it's going to be vaporized before you could even get there. And luminosity in terms of brightness, a lot of these numbers, we're going to, you're going to see these when we talk about other stars, especially mass and luminosity. When we do that, when we look at other stars, we call this one, the mass of the sun is one solar mass. Whatever that number is, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to ask you to memorize that. I'm not going to test you on what the mass of the sun is. The luminosity of the sun is one solar luminosity. That happens to be what it is, but it doesn't matter. But it's a lot easier for me, instead of saying this star is 4 times 10 to the 30th kilograms, I know that makes lots of sense, right? No. But if I say it's 2 times the mass of the sun, well, at least I can wrap my head around 2. I can't wrap my head around 10 to the 30th. I can see the number, I can calculate the number, but I can't wrap my head around it and actually understand it. But I can understand too. Oh, okay, I know the sun's real big. This is twice as big as the sun. It's 10 times as big as the sun. 100 times as big as the sun, maybe. But that's the kind of comparison that you'll actually see when we talk about radius. You know, one solar radius, one solar mass, one solar luminosity. Don't worry about the specific numbers. I'm not going to have you do. You're not going to have to do anything, memorize anything like that. Temperature is good to know around 5,800. That's that's a little that's one's a little bit easier, but I'm not, any of these big ones you do not have to have to worry about. All right. So when we look at the sun, this is not to scale at all. So it makes the outer layers look a lot bigger than they would otherwise be. The photosphere would be paper thin to this scale, or even thinner. So the photosphere, instead of being this big, thick thing, would be just, you know, not, not even a pixel on that screen. would be incredibly small. The interior structure, we have the core, which we'll come back and talk about more uh, later towards the end of this chapter. The core is where the energy generation occurs. That's where everything happens that keeps the sun shining. All the energy is being produced there. The rest of it is just transporting energy. So the outer layers of the sun I know they look like they're burning, right? You look at images of it, they're not. They're just glow, they're glow, it's a glowing plasma, it's very hot, but they're not burning in that any energy is being produced there. They're transporting the energy that was produced deep down here at the core that has now worked its way outward. Worked its way outward through radiation, right? Radiation is just particles traveling, photons traveling outward. Not very easy to do in the sun because it's so dense when you get down to that core. So those particles have to kind of jump around and it can take them, you know, 100,000 years to actually work their way out from the core to actually get out to us. So it can take a very long time. And then once they get out, then zoom, they get here in about eight minutes. Convection, we also transport energy by convection, right? Convection is heating up material. So you heat things down lower, the hot air rises, cools off and sinks, and you transport energy that way. That's transported by actually moving materials. You actually have moving material here. Here the material stays same. The radiation weaves its way through it very slowly. 
Here in convection, you actually heat up the material at the base. It rises to the surface, releases that energy, and then sinks back down. Luminosity, how bright is the sun? Well, the luminosity is the total energy radiated. It's a lot of energy trying to figure that out. Um, We can calculate that by how much reaches the Earth. So if you have the sun there, it's sending out energy in a big sphere. Right? It's not just directing it towards the Earth, it's just sending it out in space in general. We collect a little tiny portion of that. And if we figure that out, we know how much we're collecting. We know how big this giant sphere is at the Earth's orbit that the Sun is sending energy out to. And we can find out that it's emitting this great number of 4 times 10 to the 26 watts. Again, one solar luminosity. You don't need to worry about the specific number. But to put that in a little bit more perspective, Honestly, it doesn't help a lot, but it gives you an idea of how big it is. 10 billion one megaton nuclear bombs per second. Can you imagine that kind of energy? No, neither can I. But it gives you an idea that it's not just you know uh, a little gerbil on the, hamster, on the hamster wheel, or a little gerbil wheel running around producing that kind of energy. I mean, that's uh, a lot of energy, and that's every single second. That's not just how much energy to produce the sun's energy for the day, or the week, or the month, or the year, or in its lifetime. That's every single second. You have to produce that much energy at the core in order to get the energy that we're seeing out here. So a lot of energy being produced by the sun. Again, can't even begin to imagine. 10, 10, 10 billion, probably can't even imagine one megaton, one, one nuclear weapon going off, right? Um, trying to imagine 10 billion of them every second is just that amount of energy that the sun is producing. Now. Sun's producing all that energy. So that energy is all being produced at the core. And that, that tends to try to blow up the sun. Right? You've got all these, think of it as it's not really nuclear warheads, but you think of 10, 10, million, uh, 10 billion nuclear warheads going off the sun every single second. That should want to tear the sun apart, right? You've got that much energy, that's going to push everything apart and destroy the sun, and then we're all gone. But the sun has so much mass that it has gravity pulling down. And that's what this is trying to show you, that there's a pressure being exerted outward by the center of the sun, by the energy production at the center of the sun. It's all pushing outward. The blue arrows pushing inward are gravity. If they're exactly balanced at every point in the sun, balance them exactly, then the sun stays stable. So the sun produces exactly enough energy to keep it stable. It's in a state of what we call equilibrium where the energy production exactly balances gravity and keeps it at a nice steady size. Right? We don't want the sun producing lots more energy or lots less energy. It doesn't take a big change in the temperature to drastically change what we'd see here on Earth. You know, if you made that temperature a little bit hotter, that's going to really increase our temperatures here significantly. If you make that temperature a little bit colder, it's going to drop our temperatures. You know, here comes Ice Age and beyond to, free, to freeze us out. So the sun and most stars are actually in this state of equilibrium where everything is balanced. The gravity pulls down, trying to pull it down. Gravity really wants to crush the star down to a little tiny black hole at the center there. We'll come to black holes in a few chapters. But it wants to crush it down to almost nothing. The force and the force of the energy production is trying to balance that. And it will last as long as there's an energy source at the center. And in chapter 12, will actually go through sort of what happens after that stage. What happens when this 
equilibrium is no longer um, in place. When all of a sudden you're not producing enough energy, if you're not producing enough energy and you pull away these red bars, then the star cart starts to collapse. And what's going to happen then? And that's what we'll look at when we get up to chapter 12. Here's what I said at the beginning is if you imagine pulling away gravity, pull off all these blue bars, what happens to the sun? The sun would explode. If you could turn off gravity right now, you know, it wouldn't be a pleasant thing because the sun would tear itself apart with all that energy being produced at this moment at the center. All right, how do we figure this out? Don't worry about the equations. I just put them up there to drive you crazy. You're not going to be tested on them. But these are actually four equations of the structure of a star that allow us to determine everything we need to know about a star. So if you solve these equations, you don't have to, but you can figure out the pressure, the mass, the temperature, and the luminosity of the star at every point within it. Now the problem is that they're all interrelated. So the pressure depends on the density and depends on the mass. The mass depends on the density. The temperature here depends on the luminosity and the density. So they all are interrelated together. But you can put them into a computer and be able to solve them for, for very specific conditions. So again, you don't need to, you're not going to need to solve them for anything here. I'm just showing you that what you can use is there is a set of equations that exist that you can use to find out what is the luminosity of the star. If you, know, if you know all the other things that go into it, if you know its temperature at the core and you know everything that's starting there, you can then go through all these calculations and determine, bless you, determine the temperatures, the luminosities, the mass, and the pressures as you work through that star. Now, we'll come back and look at the interior structure a little bit more at the end. But we do get some idea of the interior structure by looking at Doppler shifts. Remember the Doppler shifts were things moving towards you or away from you. Moving towards you is a blue shift shifted towards shorter wavelengths. Moving away from you is a red shift. Well, when we look at the sun, we see that the sun actually has vibrational patterns in it. It's not moving towards or away from us, but it's got some parts of its atmosphere that are moving away from us, moving down towards the central portions of the sun, and some that are moving towards us. And that pattern will change, they'll come out, they'll go in. There is that very slight variations that we see. As we analyze those and go back and determine, we can then use that, we can use that pattern that we see on the surface of the sun to work downwards and tell us what the interior of the sun must be like to get those patterns. We do something similar here on the Earth with earthquake seismic waves. Seismic waves travel differently through different materials. And when we study earthquakes that occur in California and study how they're detected elsewhere around the world, we can use those to determine what the interior structure of the Earth is like. We can't dig down to the center of the Earth. You know, no matter how you want to sit there and dig, you know, our great mine shafts go down you know, a couple miles out of thousands of miles. You know, we haven't even scratched the first 1% of the Earth's surface. But we can do a similar thing on the sun, not earthquakes, but certainly vibrations that occur and that we see on the surface of the sun can then tell us something about the interior structure. What is the density like when we get down here? What is the, uh, what is the density? What is the pressure? What are the temperatures like when you get deep down into this core? So we can do that through uh, the shifting patterns that we see in some of those spectral lines. Now when we look at them here, these are, if you solve those equations, those yucky equations that I showed you there, 
If you solve them, you can find out things like density. As you start out at the center, the density gets very high, more than 100 times that of water. The temperature gets a little bit warmer than it is at the surface. It was almost, it was 5,800 degrees at the surface, pretty hot as it was. When you get down to the center, you're actually talking about 15 million degrees. So makes that makes it seem you know, bitterly cold on the surface by comparison. But this is what you could solve if you know some of these numbers. You can start solving those and you can find out how the densities that all the material in the sun is really concentrated at the very center. That's where most of the material is. By the time you get out to the atmosphere, the density is essentially zero. There's particles there, but they're very widely spaced. Temperature does the same thing. As you go from zero, the center, you're 15 million degrees, that drops down. Well, if you're at 15 million degrees and you drop down to 5,000, you're essentially nothing, right? If you had 15 million dollars and you spend it all and you got 5,000, you got nothing left, right? So if you had 15 million degrees, you've worked your way outward, you've gotten out to the surface, boom, nothing. You know, very cold now by comparison. Still pretty hot for us. 5,000, 5,000, 6,000 degrees is pretty hot. But that gives us a model of what the distribution of material of the sun is like. And that's what we get from solving those equations. How is the material distributed at the sun? It's very concentrated, very dense at the center. You know, many times denser than anything we're used to here on Earth. We don't have materials on the Earth that are 160 times denser than water. You know, if you have things that are five times, you know, rocks might be three, four, five times denser than water. Metals might get up to tens of times denser than water, but hundreds of times denser is denser than any material that we have here on the Earth. Temperatures, again, extremely hot. How do we get the energy out? Well, we start at the core. The energy is being produced down there. So that's where the actual uh, fusion of hydrogen into helium is going on. We'll go into that a little bit more detail uh, later on. And then as it comes out, we form, we have radiation coming out, so radiative material. So it, it's traveling by uh, gamma rays are produced, and those gamma rays slowly travel out through the interior. But as I said, it takes them a long time. They don't just zip right out through there. If they were, the gamma rays would head right out of the solar, uh, right out of the sun, and right to the Earth. But it takes them a much longer time. If we have our model of the sun here, and here's the core, so that's where the energy is being produced. We have the radiative zone, and then we have the convective zone. So the energy is being produced at the core, those gamma rays have to go somewhere. We can't just build them up at the center, right? It gets hotter and hotter, the pressures would build up and the sun would tear itself apart. So they have to slowly work their way out. And the particles that produce, they'll move and they'll travel out into this radiative zone. They'll meet another atom and get absorbed. So they'll be absorbed and then they'll be re-emitted right away. And it takes them a long time to work out. They'll be absorbed and they'll be re-emitted in some random direction. So the atom that absorbed them in the first place, it doesn't know where it came from. It doesn't know it came from the center or if it came from the surface or what it did. It just said, hey, I got this extra energy. I'm giving it back. It's going out some random direction. So what it slowly does is takes time, and it will slowly walk its way to the surface. But this might take 
you know, 100,000 years for it to do that. Might take it a long time for it to be absorbed and re-emitted. It would be done that many billions upon billions upon billions of times to slowly work its way to the surface. It also helps us in that not only is it absorbed and it's re-emitted, but it's also converted in form. You might take one gamma ray, really high energy, and maybe you'll make a thousand x-rays as it works its way through. It's absorbed, sometimes it's re-emitted as a gamma ray, sometimes it's re-emitted as several different x-rays. So over the course of that, you might take that extremely high energy gamma ray and convert it to thousands of x-rays. You might take an x-ray and convert that to a thousand UV photons, ultraviolet photons. You might take an ultraviolet photon and make a thousand visible light photons. So not only is it taking time, taking a hundred thousand, tens of thousands, a hundred thousand years to get out from the center, but we're also converting it. That's a good thing. We don't just want gamma rays streaming from the sun. Right? Wouldn't be pleasant for us here. Well, our atmosphere would protect us a little bit, but if you had that much intensity of gamma rays coming from the sun, it would overwhelm our atmosphere too. But in that time, it's also converting them to lower energy. It's taking the same amount of energy, but this one gamma ray may end up being a billion visible light photons by the time it gets to the surface. Much lower energy. When we get further out, then we get to the convective zone. And that's where I said we heat up. So we've now gotten it here. We've heated up the material. And then you heat up this material. It rises to the surface releases its energy, cools off, and sinks back down. So you'll see big convective cells on the surface of the, on, up on the sun, in the sun that are bringing material. So it's bringing heat where well, you've heated it up at the edge of this, edge of this area, and then bringing that energy to the surface. So a couple different modes of transport. You have the core where the energy is being made, you have a radiative zone where energy is traveling by radiation. And you have a convective zone where the energy travels by convection. Actually the material, the material of the sun actually moving and forming convective cells on the sun. Did I? Yes. How do we know this happens? Right? Feel good. This is all way deep down in the sun. So I could make up anything and tell you. How are you going to check it, right? How are you going to check what the sun is really doing? Well, this makes a prediction about the surface. So any good scientific theory should make a prediction. So if there is a convective cell here, we should be able to see that on the surface in terms of brighter areas where it's coming up and then cooler areas where it's coming down. If energy were traveling by radiation further out in the sun, you'd see a nice smooth sun. Well, that's not what we see. When we actually look at the sun, we actually see these the tops of these convective cells. We see brighter areas, lighter areas, where mater hot material has been brought up from the center. And we see cooler, darker areas where the material is sinking back down. So when we look at the actual surface of the sun, that would be what we see as the photosphere. That is evidence for this convection. So we know that this convection is actually occurring. And not just someone saying, well, here's some way it could be occurring. It actually makes a scientific prediction. It says you should see something on the surface. And that is what we see. So we do see that's those convective cells. Now they don't stay like this. They're not constant. 
They're, in fact, the sun is in a constant state of change. So the cell that you're watching here might last for a few minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. And then it will fade away as the next convective cell comes up over here. And it will cause this pattern, overall pattern, will be changing. The details will change. The overall, what we see, the same thing is happening, but the details of the pattern will change. All right, when we look at the atmosphere, we want to figure out what it's made up of. I showed you a spectrum of the sun a couple chapters ago. Seems like just yesterday, maybe it was just yesterday at the rate we have to go through these. Um, but when we look at those, we can figure out what the sun is made up of. So when we look at these spectral lines here from the violet down through the red, we see things like hydrogen lines. So we can tell what's there in the atmosphere of the sun. We can tell that there's some hydrogen. There's several of the hydrogen lines that we see. Here's calcium. So we know there's calcium in the sun. There's iron. We can find iron in the sun. Mercury, sodium, helium. We can find all different elements. And in fact, if we look at the sun in enough detail, we can find every single one of the naturally occurring elements in the sun. We can find every single one of those in there among all of these lines that we're looking at. Not an easy process, right? You still got all that. You know, if you're sitting there looking at that, or I'm sitting there looking at that, saying, there's too many lines here to try to figure out. But of course, people get experience doing this and looking at them, they can actually look, see the patterns in those different lines and find them. Now that tells us what the sun is made up of, at least the very outer layers. We can make some assumptions about what's going on further down and that the composition probably hasn't changed a whole lot. That whatever the outer parts of the sun are made up of, that's probably about the same that everything we're looking down to the core is made up of. Not in the core, that's where the composition actually changes because that's where we actually have energy production going on and hydrogen is getting changed into helium. So if we count how many hydrogen and helium atoms we see on the outer layers, we're going to see a lot more helium down in the core and a lot less hydrogen because that's what's been going on over five billion years. The sun has been converting hydrogen into helium. So we're going to see that. We can study the surface and we can make some estimates as to what that means further down. But remember, once you get out of the core, the rest of this is just transporting energy. No energy production is going on down there. Alrighty. Now, when we look at the atmosphere, there's more layers to the atmosphere. The photosphere is the outer layer, that's the innermost layer of the atmosphere that we see. This would be the very surface. We call that the photosphere or the sphere of light. That's where the light from the sun is, appears to be coming from. So sunlight appears to come. That's what we see as the surface of the sun. But around that, we actually have an atmosphere around that as well. So the sun doesn't stop right there. It's not like the surface of the Earth. right? The surface of the Earth, the rocks stop at a certain level and aren't up there any higher. Well, much of the material here is just the point where we can actually see it. There's not a difference, not a big difference between the material on one side of the photosphere and the material on the other side of the photosphere. You're still going to see almost as many particles as one side as the, or the, as the other. So there's still a lot, of, a lot of material out here. It's just the photosphere is the point at which the sun becomes transparent. All of a sudden the sun is not transparent here. You cannot travel. Light cannot travel through this. Once you get up to that level and the density is dropped to a critical value, all of a sudden light can escape from the photosphere and escape from the sun and travels out. And that's what we see as the surface. It doesn't mean the sun stops there. 
If we look outside of that and we look at, for example, during a solar eclipse, the moon is blocking out the photosphere of the sun, dropping off all that, blocking off all that bright light, we then see what we call the chromosphere. Chromosphere for sphere of color. So a sphere of color around the sun because when it's seen in a solar eclipse it looks a reddish color. Now it's not something we can just look at. right? I can't just look at the sun and say, oh there's the photosphere, there's the chromosphere. You can't because the photosphere is so bright it overwhelms everything else. So photosphere is, chromosphere is there. During an eclipse you can see it. But you can't just see it typically during the day, just like you can't go out and see the stars during the day. Right? You go out now and look for the stars. They're there, they're shining, but the sun is overwhelming, the sun's light is overwhelming them. So the sun's, the sun's light of the photosphere is doing the same thing to the chromosphere, towards the outer layers. But during an eclipse, or if we make an artificial eclipse, there's actually ways to do that, to block out the sun, to be able to study the chromosphere that we can do now. We start to see some kinds of structures in the chromosphere. So again, this is stuff we can only see for the sun. This likely goes on on all the other stars. But we just can't see them in enough detail to be able to get patterns like this. We see storms in the chromosphere. And you see some of these uh, spicules, spikes, almost coming up out of, the, out of the solar atmosphere. So we start to see some ideas, some of our beginning ideas that we'll look at in a little bit as to the storms occurring on the surface of the sun. Uh, the sun is not a very calm surface. In fact, it's very active, um, almost continuously to some, has some activity on it. And these are just one example of the storms. The brighter areas would be sunspots. Sunspots normally look dark when you look at the surface of the sun. Up in the chromosphere, they've actually heated up <coughs> and they're hotter than most of the other areas. So they actually look a lot brighter. So you have some sunspot and areas of activity when you look at them in the chromosphere actually look a lot brighter. When we look at sunspots here in a few minutes, we'll actually see that they look a lot darker than the surface of the rest of the surface of the sun. Now, chromosphere, further out, the furthest part of the atmosphere is the corona, is the furthest out portion. So we had corona, the chromosphere, The photosphere, this is the atmosphere of the sun. So those are the outer layers. The interior would then be the convective zone, the radiative zone, and the core. So all those different parts of the sun, these would be the interior of the sun. The corona is the furthest out part of the, of the atmosphere. So again, you can see it during the eclipse if you're blocking out the inner layers. If you block out the photosphere and you block out the chromosphere, if it's a good enough eclipse, you'll be able to see the corona around the sun, the very outer layers of the atmosphere. Now this is actually the hottest part of the solar atmosphere. Temperatures at the surface were about 6,000 degrees, 5,800 degrees. They get a little bit warmer when you get out to the chromosphere. They go up to about, from about 6,000 to maybe about 10,000 degrees. They shoot up when you get up to the corona to up over a million degrees. So extremely high temperatures, but not a lot of particles. Particles are spaced, you know, there's a particle here and a particle here, you know, 
You could sit there and count. You could actually sit there and count them. You'd have things that are very low density compared to you know an atmosphere on Earth, where there's billions of billions of billions of particles in every little cubic centimeter. So here's the idea of the temperatures. Starts off and cools off a little bit. Here, as you go from the surface at about 6,000, it cools off a little bit in the chromosphere and then starts to heat up again. And then as you get further and further out, then it, the temperatures just shoot up to extremely high temperatures over a million degrees. So very high temperatures when you get up there. No energy production. It's not hot enough to actually be able to produce energy. You need temperatures of at least 10 million degrees. And you also need a much higher density. You need those particles squished together in order to actually produce uh, nuclear reactions. What causes it to heat up? It's a good question. Probably the magnetic field of the sun. The magnetic field of the sun gets tangled uh, around the surface. And some of those magnetic field lines whip up into the corona. They just were whipping around there. And a magnetic field line can accelerate a particle. Electrons, protons, when a magnetic field line is whipping around them, it can actually accelerate them to very high speeds. And recall, that's really what temperature is measuring. Temperature is measuring the speed of the particles. So it's measuring up here that these particles in the corona are moving incredibly quick compared to particles in the photosphere, which are still moving incredibly quick to compared to particles in this room. You know, here in this room, we're at you know, you know, room temperature about if we do Kelvin's about 300 degrees, which is what we're measuring everything else in. Photosphere's about 6,000 degrees. Corona's about a little over a million degrees. Really all that's telling us is that the particles are moving faster and faster. And probably the magnetic field of the sun is responsible for whipping those particles up to those extremely high speeds. Now, said we'd see some pictures of sunspots. Here's a couple right here. Sunspots uh, observed by Galileo and with his telescope, uh, probably through projecting the telescope, projecting material off into, onto a display to be able to see it. Uh, you still would, you wouldn't want to look at a telescope, even through, even through a telescope at the sun, even something as small as Galileo's, just because it would be so bright it would damage your eyes. So Galileo likely looked at the sun, you know, close to sunrise or sunset when it isn't quite so painful to look at. Right, it's looking through all that atmosphere or by some kind of projection method in order to be able to sketch these sunspots. But the sunspots appear dark. They're not continents or anything on the surface of the sun. They're no place that you could say, hey, here's a nice cooler spot on the sun where we can land. They are cooler than the surrounding area. Surrounding area is about 5,800 degrees. Right? That's the general surface of the sun. Sunspots might be 4,500 degrees. Still not some place you want to go visit. Still much too hot, still be vaporizing anything that you had. So they only look dark because you're looking at them against the surface of the sun. If you could take out, if you could take a big scoop and take that sunspot material and put it out in space, it would glow a nice orangish red. So they're still hot, they still have a significant temperature associated with them, but they're much cooler, so they look darker only because of comparison to the rest of the sun, only because they're slightly cooler. You, pro you recognize a couple of these terms maybe from eclipses, right? The umbra and the penumbra. 
again in this case, in this case they have nothing to do with an eclipse. There's nothing blocking out that light except perhaps magnetic fields of the sun that are changing the temperatures. But the umbra just again refers to the darkest part of the sunspot. The penumbra is the lightest portion around that before you get back into the regular solar atmosphere. So you may see those terms again in terms of referring to different parts of the sun. Sunspots are not a permanent feature either, so not like continents on the Earth that are here now and they might move a little bit but they'll be here a million years from now. The sunspots come and go over days to weeks to maybe a month. So you'll see sunspots there, you'll see sunspots come and you'll see sunspots go. And they'll, they'll move across the surface of the sun, you'll watch it as the sun rotates. You'll be able to watch a pair of sunspots go from here to here over the course of a few days to a week and travel across the surface of the sun. Sunspots always come in, almost always come in pairs. There's two sunspots. Uh, that's partially because they're a magnetic phenomena. That means they're related to the magnetic field of the sun. And if you have a magnetic field, you always have a north pole and a south pole. So when you look at the sunspots, you'd have a north pole here and a south pole here. The north pole will always be leading if, in the, if you're in the northern hemisphere of the sun, so you'd have the north pole and the south pole behind it. If you're south of the equator, you have the south pole leading and the north pole following along. But you're always going to get them in pairs and you're always, they're always associated with magnetic fields. How can we tell that? In some cases we can actually see the magnetic field lines and that's what this image here, uh, ultraviolet image of the surface of the sun, is seeing a solar prominence here. But this is actually the magnetic field is what you're seeing. Magnetic fields are invisible, generally. You can't see a magnetic field. There's, the Earth's magnetic field is passing through us right now and we can't see it. But if I take um, a compass or a bunch of compasses and put them together, we can actually map out the Earth's magnetic field in this room. Well, we can have particles following along the magnetic fields that do emit energy and cause it to glow, showing us where the magnetic field lines are. So. Without these particles, this magnetic field would be invisible. But because they're there illuminating it, it allows us to see that, see the magnetic field lines. If you've ever looked at, if you've ever done a bar magnet, bar magnet has a north pole and a south pole. And some might have done in a science class, do the experiment where you put iron filings on a piece of paper over it. And you'll find that those iron filings kind of line up in a nice pattern of a magnetic field going from south to north. So you'd be able to see that kind of pattern in the magnetic field. You're not seeing the magnetic, you can't see the magnetic field lines directly, but using other things such as iron filings on a bar magnet or here plasma on the surface of the sun allows you to be able to follow the magnetic field in much more detail. So you can actually see where the magnetic field is coming out of one spot and coming back down into another. Now, why do we get it all twisted up? Earth's magnetic field doesn't do this, right? Earth's magnetic field just kind of sits there. Pretty much the same. Well, recall that the Earth rotates differently than the Sun. The Earth takes 23 hours and 56 <coughs> minutes to spin around once. And it doesn't matter whether you're at the equator or at the pole. It still takes 23 hours and 56 minutes to spin around once. But the Sun didn't. The Sun was rotating in about 25 days here at the equator, about 36 days at the pole. 
So if you watch it here and you have start off with everything lined up, nice smooth magnetic field like you'd have on the Earth, and you let it rotate for a couple of days, the equator is rotating faster, faster, the poles are rotating slower, the magnetic field is getting stretched out. Do that over the course of a couple of months. Over about three months, the central portions of the sun, the equator, will have rotated about four times. The pole would have rotated about three. So the, the equator would have lapped the pole once in about three months. Do that again, another three months, it's lapped it again. And again, you're twisting and tangling up this magnetic field over the course of several years. It gets all tangled and jumbled up and twisted. And some of those magnetic field lines start to pop out through the surface. And that's what we see as sunspots. Where it's gotten so twisted and tangled up that some of those magnetic field lines, instead of staying nice and smooth, nice and straight, just kind of buckle and form a loop. And when that comes out through this part of the sun, that cools off a little bit of the area. It cools off that area where the magnetic field goes out or comes in, making it a little bit cooler and darker. But we also get it associated with more activity. And that's where we saw some of that solar activity we were starting to look at in the last image. So it's all due to, believed to be due to the rotation of the sun and the fact that it doesn't rotate as a solid ball. If the sun were solid, you wouldn't get this. It would rotate. The magnetic field would all rotate with it. And you wouldn't get all this twisting and turning and tangling of the magnetic field that we do see. Now, sunspots aren't always on the sun. Sometimes we see lots of them. Sometimes we see very few. And it actually has an 11-year sunspot cycle. The sunspots will rise and then fall and then rise again. And this graph down here is sort of showing that over the course of 100 years that there have been times when there's been lots of sunspots. Around 2000, 2001, there were a lot of sunspots. Back here around 1990, 11 years before, about 11 years before, about every 11 years, you have a peak in the sunspot cycle. It's not perfect, right? It doesn't, doesn't look exactly perfect. Not each peak is the same. Some of them are very big. You know, 1980, 1960 were pretty big. 1970 wasn't all that big of a sunspot. Had a lot more solar activity here since 1950. A lot less back here in the early part of the century, part of the 1900s. You know, still had a peak, but it was much lower. So it's not occurring at a very regular pattern or something that we can see very easily. So it's not an exact pattern. 11 years is pretty good. It almost always does that. But whether it's going to be a good a big sunspot cycle and have lots of sunspots or it's going to be very low, is not something we can tell until afterwards. Right now, we're getting back up towards the peak again. And around here, around this year, we've started to have a lot more sunspot activity. How big of a peak will it be? Wait a couple of years, then we can look back and tell you. I can't tell you whether it's going to, you know, it's peaking right now, but is it done? Or is it going to keep doing it for another couple months? And are we going to see more and more sunspots? Or is it going to drop down and just level off at one of these lower ones? It's not something that you can easily predict. You can make all the guesses you want, but to really find out, you've got to wait until afterwards. And looking back at the previous data, there's really no easy way to tell. Now, the top diagram is actually showing the pattern as to where the sunspots occur. So where do they occur on the surface of the sun? When the solar cycle starts out at minimum down here, so as you begin the new solar cycle and start heading up towards maximum again, 
the sunspots start very far away from the equator. And that's what the graph is trying to show you up here, that you see the sunspots when they're first starting to occur are way up here at you know 30 degrees, 30, even 40 degrees latitude. As you look at them as it goes on, as the cycle goes on and you get closer towards the middle, there's the peak where there's lots of sunspots. As it continues out and goes towards the next minimum, so if you started here, went through that maximum and down to the minimum again, now at the very end of that cycle, the sunspots are starting to occur very close to the equator. So this is what is called the uh, Maunder butterfly diagram. So it looks like a little butterfly. If you turn your head sideways and imagine the two wings of the butterfly here, and then perhaps the head going this way, you have the butter, it's, uh, butterfly. And that repeats every year. So every time we get this cycle, not only do the number of sunspots change, but where they occur on the surface of the sun changes as well. So when you start the solar cycle, start it at a minimum here, you get them very far away from the equator. At the peak, they're coming down closer to the equator. As you get to towards the next minimum, you're then very close to the equator. Then there's very few sunspots and the new ones that start to appear start to be at higher, higher latitudes again. So not only do the number of sunspots change, but where they occur on the surface of the sun changes as well. Now, I told you it's an 11 year cycle. Oh, it's a 22 year cycle actually. Just to make it a little bit more. There's really a 22 year cycle. Because what happens is the sunspots switch from north to south every 11 years. So I'm going to go back here. Two slides, I think. Yeah, when we were looking at them here, we had north and south. Right? We had the north leading and the south trailing. When it comes down and goes through the solar cycle and goes to minimum, the solar magnetic field flips. If this is the north magnetic pole and this is the south magnetic pole, after one complete sunspot cycle, they flip and this becomes the south magnetic pole. This becomes the north magnetic pole. Sun doesn't flip over. Sun stays the same. North geographic pole is still right where it was, but the magnetic field inside it flipped. So the magnetic field within the sun has flipped upside down and now the north magnetic pole is pointing towards the south pole. The south magnetic pole is pointing towards the north pole. This actually happens on the earth as well. Not on, a, not on an 11 year basis, but there are times in the earth's past where the north magnetic pole has been down by the south pole. And where the south magnetic pole has been up where the earth's north magnetic pole, where the north pole is right now. So it does happen on the earth. It's a much longer time frame. It takes you know, tens of thousands of years for it to flip. But there could come a time you'll take your compass and you take it out and it's going to start pointing south instead of north. Because the earth's magnetic field will have flipped. Well the sun does that, but the sun does it on a very regular basis. In fact it does it every 11 years it flips. So, so not only, so we had three things going on there that changed. We had the number of sunspots changed. So we had the number of sunspots changing. How many you see changes during that cycle. The location on the sun changes. Very high latitudes as you start the cycle. Going down lower and lower as you go through and coming up close to the equator when you get towards the end of the cycle. And 
polarity, the north and south, changes. On one cycle, you'd have a north and a south. The next cycle around, another sunspot occurring in the northern hemisphere of the sun would then have south and north. So the polarity of the sunspots would also switch. I'm giving the sun a complete magnetic cycle of 22 years. So 22 years later, the next one, you're back to south and north again. So this would be 22 years to get back to exactly what you'd seen before. That one in between has actually been flipped. And that pattern goes on and on pretty regularly. I showed it to you for 100 years. This one shows us pretty much everything that we know. Back to the time of Galileo when the first sunspots were observed. And as I said, there's some really big sunspot peaks, some that were not so big. Down here, a little bit of a jump here, almost nothing for a while. And there was also a period very early on in the late 16 to early 1700s. We know sunspots had been observed already. Galileo observed them in the very early part of the 17th century. And they'd been seen before, they'd been marked here. But there was a long period here where there were hardly any sunspots visible. So where the 11 year cycle or the 22 year cycle didn't work out every single time. That there was actually a period where the sunspots didn't appear, where you didn't see sunspots for decades or hardly any. Yeah, you can see if you look at the numbers here, there's this one section where it's really almost zero and you had a few here and a few here, but really a very long stretch of about 50 years worth where there was almost no sunspots on the surface of the sun. Very few, if any, sunspots were actually seen for that time period. And that's what's called the Maunder Minimum. Will that occur again? Probably. It occurred once. Why would it not occur again? When will it occur again? You know, will it, we got to, we're coming to a peak right now, so we know we're getting to an active cycle. Will it continue to occur again? Possibly. We've been coming through a much higher active cycle, so will it slow down a little bit back to one of these levels and then pitter out for a while and have no sunspots for a number of years? Perhaps. But that also has an effect on the Earth. When we see very few sunspots, that means less solar activity and actually cools off the Earth a little bit. So when you get something like that, that, mi that minimum of activity for the, for the sun for an extended period of time like that, that was actually the time of uh, the mini ice age back in, in Europe, back in this time. It was actually unusually cold weather for a long period of time here. There were some sunspots here and by tracing some other things we can sort of make estimates as to what occurred even before we could make measurements of the sunspots as to what could have been visible and what the activity might have been like earlier on. So right now we've been in an unusually active era. In fact, you can see there's not many times of very low sunspots. Even the lower ones are relatively high. So we're coming up towards a much higher area. How long that will continue? What this year's will be like? Good guess. You know, wait till it's over. Come back in 100 years and look at it again. Then we'll really be able to see what happened here. You know, is there another big minimum coming out here at the end of this century? Could be. That might occur only every, once every 10,000 years or 100,000 years. This is the only data we have for sunspots going from today, here, back to the time of Galileo. The only efficient observations we've had of sunspots. Now when we look at them, we see some of the prominences there. You see one prominence pictured on the left hand side and then sort of re-shown on the right. 
These are eruptions of material. These are mat- this is material being lifted off the surface of the sun. So imagine those magnetic fields as the magnetic field is trapped in the sun as it comes out, as it's ripped out of the sun. It doesn't just go quietly, it pulls the material with it. So it pulls a lot of that material out with it and that causes a solar prominence. So we're seeing the magnetic field here from one sunspot grouping here down into another one kind of off the edge that you can't see. But as that prominence came up it ripped material off the surface of the sun and then it will rain back down on the sun. So rain not in any nice sense but a rain of you know, thousand degree, thou, many thousand degree plasma going back down to the surface of the sun. But that's what we see when we get this kind of activity. The more active the sun gets, the more things like prominences and solar flares that we see. The more active, the more sunspots. That would not have occurred much during the time of the Maunder Minimum. There would not have been a lot of solar activity going on at that time. You wouldn't have seen prominences. Not only sunspots, but you wouldn't see the prominences and you wouldn't see the flares. Now these are looking at in ultraviolet light. So you're looking out into the chromosphere a little bit further out in the solar solar atmosphere. But again, you're seeing a lot of the prominences, you're seeing a lot of the material following along those magnetic field lines. So the gas of the sun, the plasma of it, is actually highlighting those magnetic field lines for us. A solar flare is more like an explosion. So instead of that material being pushed off the surface of the sun relatively gently and being pulled up in there, Imagine instead of whipping it up and throwing the material out. So a solar flare is actually the same kind of thing, same kind of thing as a prominence. The magnetic field's ripping the material off, but instead of taking it, you know, a day to leisurely raise it up, it can do it in minutes, seconds. So it's throwing it up in there, and that will actually throw it with velocities that can be sufficient to allow the material to escape. So solar flares can actually affect the Earth. You can actually send that material to the Earth and strike the Earth and interact with our atmosphere, interact with our magnetic field, interact with our atmosphere and give us things like the aurora. So when you get lots of solar flares, especially if they happen to be directed towards the Earth, if the Earth were off in this direction someplace, you know, way down, that material would be heading towards Earth, streaming towards Earth, would interact with our magnetic field and cause our atmosphere to glow. And we would see the aurora there. The stronger the flare, the more particles that are coming, and the stronger the aurora we're going to see. And also, the further south the aurora we're going to see. Typically, we see the aurora in Alaska, Canada, Scandinavia, very far north areas on the Earth, or very far south. But if you have a very strong, very strong, very strong solar flare, you might see those down even closer. So you might be able to see them at our latitude in Harrisburg. Uh, Very large ones, you've seen them down in Atlanta, you know, southern part of the U.S. It takes an intense flare to be able to do that. And the most intense ones can actually cause damage. Um, The very largest flares can actually cause significant damage, send enough material towards the Earth that will really uh, cause major problems with communications, can disrupt communications because of the amount of energy being produced. And let me see. The last one, I'm going to finish up here. This should be, if I'm thinking right, this should be a good... Yep, well, I'm going to do those. I'm going to do this one. I'm going to stop with the coronal mass ejections. And then we'll finish up the active sun. I've got a couple little things I want to show you next time. And then we'll finish up the rest of the energy production tomorrow. But a coronal mass ejection, 
actually sends even more particles. This is more intense than a flare and actually is sending material, streams of material out of the sun somewhere into space. Now, so here's an example of a coronal mass ejection material, lots of material, much more than a flare being sent out. If we're over on this side, we're nice and safe. If this one happens to be coming towards the Earth, that can cause significant disruptions. Um, we have some minor coronal mass ejections that have hit um, that can cause minor effects. A real major one, the last really major one hit in 1859. So, long time ago. Long time before electronics and all the electronics that we depend on today. So what something like that would do today is a good question. How much, how much electronics would be able to survive a very large coronal mass ejection sent right at the Earth? Um, at the time, it disrupted the, what was the communication at the time was telegraph, okay, 1850s. And it certainly uh, caused fires in the telegraph wires. I mean, it was that much energy that it was actually causing fires in those. What that would do to communication satellites out in orbit, you know, how would it disrupt our communications is a really good question. And we're coming to the point where we're about due. But of course, statistically about due astronomically could mean next week, could mean 100 years from now. You know, statistically it's due, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen in the next few, next few days, next few weeks, next few months. But we're at the peak of a cycle. That's the time when these kind of things will occur. So they certainly will occur. It's the direction, it's whether it happens to occur when it's pointing towards Earth or pointing out in another direction, in which case it doesn't affect us at all. So I'm going to finish up there because that's a lot. I've got a little bit more on the active sun and then we've got to do the solar interior. And we'll do that tomorrow. That'll be the last of the material for the exam on Wednesday. So, yay. I know. At least tomorrow is lab, so you don't have to listen to me for quite as long tomorrow. That'll be nice, I know. But Monday's the long, Monday's the long one, so. And hey, that means only three more days and then we're halfway through the course. So don't forget if you have not, article review. And don't forget that's 40 points, so don't, don't miss that, please. That's a, big, that's a big one. I need that by 6 o'clock. I'm hoping to get them, if I get time, I'll get in here early enough. I'll try to look at them and even get them back to you because I have a couple other things I have to give back to you after as well. And if you haven't taken the quizzes already, make sure you get those two quizzes. And then the homework I'll remind you again of tomorrow if you haven't done the, done the homework. So, Questions, questions? No, we're ready to go, I know.